Well, good afternoon. The previous podcast may have seemed a little bit off, but it's this almost kismet connection between these classes and why I started taking these classes and how it all connects. More importantly, how it all connects to uh, a greater whole. And in this case, the greater whole is the translation of these teachings. So what I was getting at is, I was going to ask, oh, I apologize, start over. So this past Sunday was uh, the last class in uh, a series of 12 classes on the Mahadevi, uh, the Devi Mahatmya, more specifically. It was a, it's a, um, it's a treatise on the goddess, but it really is essentially about um, not-self, you know, what is awareness, uh, the nature of reality. So it's no different from Yogacara, from uh, Buddhism, uh, from a lot of these uh, paths. And why I mention that uh, is because the teacher is, he's a doctor a couple times over, I believe, expert in, in Sanskrit and the translation of these texts. Um, I, was, I forgot what I was getting at. Um, on that. It's a 12 class. In, oh, it doesn't matter. But I was going to ask him about his experience in Germany because he did his second, well, I think he got his master's at the Sanskrit University in Nepal and then did a PhD in Germany. But he may have done a second PhD, but don't quote me on this. It doesn't matter. So his PhD had to do with translating Sanskrit, translating these ideas. And so I was going to ask him about his experience in Germany because of how many uh, individuals that were inspired by uh, the Indian uh, philosophy, the subcontinent, uh, and all of its different forms that it may take, Buddhism, Hinduism, Vedanta, Shaivism, uh, Advaita of, of all sorts um, but like I said in that previous uh, he answered the question already because he said well none of these uh, modern uh, movements or gurus or traditions or lineages have uh, at their root the Vedas so that's why they're you know uh, you know fly by night they come and go and, and maybe uh, also why they are missing the the sufficiency that uh, these people are looking for in these practices because they don't have, and I understand what he's getting at, it's not just the tradition um, meaning, you know, uh, we're older than you, but it has to do with this universal tradition that it's been worked on, and he even said that, you know, they've been working on this for centuries, you know, so it has more gravitas, it has more weight, more value, more more oomph, more respect, all the above. But as I said, um, I changed my question then for the final day, but it didn't get asked because I don't know the thinking behind the students 
his students that choose who they're going to ask because again they end up asking more questions than the rest of the audience combined so it's three people that are helping out uh, the professor who end up asking just the three of them end up asking more questions than all of the other students combined and, and in last week there was over 100 people in there so imagine that three people are taking up uh, more of the professor's uh, time than the rest of the class. But of course, Acharya probably doesn't realize that that's what they're doing, right? They, they, he might think, well, there's only a half dozen questions that come in. But I don't think he realizes that, you know, they are, um, you know, appropriating some of his time. But the question that I wanted to ask him was originally, like I said, Germany, and what sort of discussion they, they had. Um, but then, as I said, this evolved into a deeper discussion as to why it isn't commonly discussed. And I also wanted to ask him, so if they miss Nietzsche and Jung, Nishitani and Schopenhauer, and, um, and then the greater influence even beyond that, uh, Maslow even recently, uh, I found out, was influenced by these same teachings. If they're not discussing this in a program, a PhD program, designed to help uh, better translate these, not just the language, but also the meanings, the message, the practices, the ideas, this universal message. If they're not discussing it at that level, why not? Is it because they don't understand? Is it because they don't want to? Do they not want to confuse what's going on? Because I put to him another question. What is his opinion about the idea that we need to take these myths, these archetypes, and modernize them, as was what Nietzsche was doing with Zarathustra? The Ubermensch was a modern interpretation of Christos, Christos the Anointed One, from Greek, this idea of being the best that you can possibly be. Bodhisattva, right? Shakti, this universal connecting power, uh, influenced Jung, to develop this idea of Zella. But Jung and Joseph Campbell and Northrop Fry all said what was important about the Bible is that we understand that these are monomyths, right? The hero's journey. Um, I mean, even for me, uh, Mahakali, these um, ferocious Buddha aspects uh, uh, or uh, goddesses that are ferocious, uh, it, it's, it's not the same idea of, you know, the Wicked Witch of the West, it's this um, complete package of good and ferocious in one, right? If you, and I love what Acharya talked about, is that um, you may be afraid of a lioness, uh, but if you were one of her cubs, right, would you be afraid? But more importantly, you know, the lioness is ferocious, but would she apply that same ferociousness to her own cubs, right? So you can recognize the ferocity, but not fear it in the same way that you might, especially when this is this God-fearing idea. So it's not fear in the sense of the wrathful will punish me. It's more like a lapdog um, wants to please its betters. 
So we're like that as well in the sense that we're trying to um, we're trying to craft ourselves something anew. Uh, so really the goddess is a reflection of our ultimate um, desire to be better. So really that reflection is what we're looking for. Right? So we're not looking to please, we're looking to see our own reflection as to being, you know, we're doing the job uh, that we're meant to do. So I wanted to ask him, what, what is his belief, or, or does, he, does he have an opinion on the importance of translating these myths, these archetypes, these messages, to a modern audience? I've made jokes about using the Lion King or, or um, Pinocchio, uh, and I'm trying to, uh, trying to adopt that myself. So I wanted to know his opinion on this. Is this something that, that he finds important, or is he um, a little further upstream from this uh, cultural affect? What I mean is, is he simply looking to translate uh, these documents as perfectly as possible um, and allowing them to be maybe uh, uh, Andy Warholized by other people downstream. But that being said, then my question is, what is your opinion about the obfuscation of these same teachings if we don't teach the source of the same? What I mean is, if we don't understand, like with Nietzsche, if we don't understand what it's trying to teach, we might misunderstand that the Ubermensch is something that we arguably can achieve ourselves, which, no attainment, it's harmful in and of itself. So this moonshot goal, that a goal that we realize we're not going to achieve, can motivate us more than a goal that we know uh, is achievable, because we can set, it may sound arbitrary, but it's not. It's Think of it more like... Um, like a flexible room to land, right? So our landing zone uh, is, is flexible, expansible, because we have no idea what our potential might be. On any given day, as David Goggins says, we, we usually think we're out of gas and we've only used maybe 40% of our gas tank. But that being said, depending on the day, right, we have more fuel in that tank so this extensible uh, landing zone allows us uh, to reach uh, further than we would ever give ourselves credit. Because I know myself, I'm coming off a couple of days of being um, very unwell. Uh, so that limits what I can do. Uh, in fact, what was it? Um, I was surprised. I was only able to do one short little thing. Oh, you had my class on Sunday. So I was only able to uh, be in the class the stress of being called on uh, for the question because, again, I'm, I'm very honored to be in the class and I don't want to be misunderstood and I don't want to, you know, me, if you've been listening to my podcast, I can, I can ramble. So I was nervous, but I was just tired, right? Uh, it was just done even before that day had, had, uh, had uh, come about, right? So to me, here's the doubt. There were some questions in there. Right? How do you work through doubt? And he answered it very nicely. Uh, he said, you work on one thing. Right? So I've mentioned this before. You use mantra. Uh, you fixate on your mantra. Fixate on your breathing. Pranayam. Um, 
breathing is an important thing, especially for those that are traumatized. You tend to do uh, short, shallow breaths, which is just exasperating your physical uh, uh, anxiety. So deep diaphragmatic breaths helps uh, pump the, the lymph system. It's just better for you. keeps yourself healthy as well. So he said, yeah, doubt, very important. It is as much from the uh, goddess as confidence. He explained the importance of trust. Uh, this last class, uh, he mentioned shraddha, faith, uh, but the idea of commitment, um, commitment, confidence, and devotion. Right. So it doesn't negate doubt. It just gives you that trust um, to proceed within. Uh, so I was wondering uh, whether he understood, from my perspective, how important it is. Because I got a short little story um, uh, for me, how this works. So it wasn't actually Acharya that's reaffirmed my belief and, and understanding of these teachings. It was for me, um, I was a soul practitioner. Right? I, I always joked about being a Pratyeka Buddha. So this idea of being a soul practitioner and, and not having a guru per se. Not 100% true, but it is for the most part. But for me, I ended up um, giving of myself, selfishly looking for just a deepening of my understanding, of my practice, of my devotion, of my commitment, of my confidence. I started giving tours in a, uh, a different sect, uh, me being a yoga karn, a chittamatran Buddhist, um, tantric Buddhist. I ended up practicing with uh, Pure Land or Chan affiliated temple. So not the same sect, but you know, similar, very close, as I said, uh, Yogacara. In the, uh, the Lankavatara Sutra, it is said that the Buddha taught this exam, exact same lesson of Tantric Buddhism in all of Buddhism, but he just taught it in different ways for different audiences. So for me, my uh, wavelength is Tantra. For others, it may be Pure Land, it may be Chan, it may even be uh, Guanyin. Uh, goddess worship. I mean, Guanyin or Avilokiteshwara is, if nothing else, you know, goddess worship. So all of that's available to you, but you wouldn't believe what actually uh, deepened my resolve and, and, and made me understand exactly why I love Yogacara. So I was actually watching the museum all by myself one day, um, and it's a, it's a beautiful uh, stupa, uh, so people can come in and there's multiple levels. Uh, I tended, if they wanted to, and it wasn't mandatory, I could give them a tour if they wanted, or they could just wander uh, fairly freely um, if they'd like. Uh, most of it was pretty self There's little plaques and such. So you could do go on a self-guided, or, you know, I could answer any questions, show you around. I could do just about whatever you'd like. So one day I had a pretty high-end uh, practitioner come in. I, don't quote me on this. I believe he was uh, a father of Krishna. Um, you know, the robes, uh, his japa mala was hidden in a bag. Um, just all of the uh, examples of, of what uh, he may have been, this practice he followed. And we ended up talking a little bit. And he asked me um, what I felt the difference between the two. And, of course, I thought I was pretty smart. And I said, uh, well... Yeah, it's our cons uh, concept of the Atman, 
of the soul is different between uh, his practice and, and mine. And so essentially his question was just, is it? That was it. No argument, no try, not trying to convince me in any way. And keep in mind, I've been, I've been studying uh, Yogacara for decades, uh, even at that point. But that still led me to question and go, well, what is this difference? And that's what led me to understand that Buddhism is not teaching, at least in the West, is not teaching, um, not teaching it completely. Because what was missing was this concept of a perfected nature. Right? So I'm going to get into this quickly, and I apologize, but there's an idea in Yogacara of an eighth and a, and a seldom-taught ninth consciousness. Some people think the eighth consciousness is strictly Yogacara, but it's not. It's just Yogacara realized how important and foundational it was to understand this eighth consciousness. So you have one through five, your senses. Just your run-of-the-mill consciousness. And why they teach it this way is because your eyes see, and then they just tell your next level of consciousness what they see, and that level of consciousness interprets your senses, uh, right? Parses the data and passes it on up the chain, right? So five, six parses the senses. Your seventh consciousness is this, this perception, not of self, but the conglomeration, right? Uh, um, what's the word? Klesha? It doesn't matter. It's a organization. So you recognize that, not you, but this seventh consciousness, recognize the five senses, uh, the consciousness that, that uh, acts as intermediary for those senses, and understands it's, it's at least it's, somatic experience as a whole. That's not where it ends, though. Because it, that's not the concept of self, right? Because this concept of self transcends our physical experience. It even transcends our, our psychological experience, our mental, our fantasy, any of that. This idea of self seems to transcend. And I'm not talking about, you know, a greater sense being of self. I just mean our own personal sense of self. That's the eighth consciousness. It's called the uh, Laya Vijnana in Sanskrit. And why it's important? Because the Laya Vijnana is something that is what modern science, artificial intelligence, uh, cognitive science, they should all be looking at, which surprises me even more that it's not often discussed. The Alaya Vijnana is a storehouse consciousness. We fill it with these little seeds of self. They're called bija. You fill this storehouse up with previous experience, preference, uh, the identity of self. Like, I'm cool. Uh, you know, I'm fit. I'm, I'm what have you. Whatever in positive or negative, all of these aspects that were just experience but you could easily just leave behind and roll on forward, but you don't. So the reason why I'm mentioning this is, as example, I am a follower of uh, Yoga Kara, Zen, Buddhism, if you want. 
And a foundational text of that is this Lankavatara Sutra. It's only been translated a few times in history. What's really interesting, in the last 10 years, it was translated again and kind of brought together all the different translations. But I came across a major mistake. And until I was able to really learn to express myself in a written fashion, and I mean, it literally just would have fallen on deaf ears because I just would have been, you know, if you've listened to a podcast from a couple of years ago, just the rantings of a raving lunatic, it would have sounded like. Rather than explain it very simply here, so he's translating a section of the Lankavatara Sutra where it talks about this progression uh, I've mentioned it before, Chitta Vritti Naroda. It's a foundational understanding that transcends Buddhism, Vedanta, Advaita, Shaivism. It's all the same teaching, the true nature of self. In fact, Shaivists use the same term for self, Upakara, as Vasubandhu, a practitioner of Yogacara, foundational, a patriarch, I guess you would even call him. So the important thing here is Red Pine is the translator modern translation of the Lankavatara. He has uh, multiple languages to resource from. Uh, Chinese, Japanese, I believe. Uh, Sanskrit uh, in a couple different forms. There's even English. you got uh, the, uh, D.T. Suzuki's translation and his guide to the Lanka. Yet in this section, he ignores two of the translations that, that say eight consciousnesses need to be, I'm not sure the words he chose, don't quote me on this, but either emptied or eliminated or what have you. The uh, emptiness, uh, there's a lot of uh, flowery language. The idea is needs to be dealt with. The way I explained it to the wife is chitta vritti naroda. Chitta is a consciousness. Uh, Vritti is uh, like fluctuation, flapping of a flag. And the road is cessation. So cease the the fluctuations of consciousness, of mind, of identity. Right. So same as the uh, first five senses, same thing can be done. You only pay attention to the colors and pass that information along. You don't show a preference. You don't attach or have an aversion to. Right. You cease useless flapping. The way I explained it is, if you think of a flag flag is meant to blow in the wind and it fills its function by being full the flag form and function but if you find a flag flapping too much violently flapping for example you'll find that it no longer unfurls fully a flag no longer has its form and its function because it got too much. This is our goal. So he ignored two other translations that said eight consciousness need to be emptied. And he said, well, they must have meant seven because he's probably only been taught about the eight consciousnesses. He hasn't been taught about the ninth. Rare teaching, Yoga Karan most specifically, but it's mandatory. Because if the eighth consciousness is the identity of self, this storehouse of consciousness, well, you're going to need to drain that. Once it's drained, you have nothing. There's an empty aspect. Empty. 
So what would that make you? You're empty of unnecessary fluctuations. That's what we call the Amala Vijnana. I've mentioned this before in podcasts because it is foundational to Buddhism, but I didn't realize it's foundational to most of these movements that came out of India and have influenced modern understandings. Jung's philosophy is based on this. Nietzsche, Schopenhauer in a lot of ways, Emerson, Whitman. Um, I could. There's a long list, let's be honest. So once you empty that storehouse of all them little seeds, the bija, you have emptied your previous experience, the previous identity, but you're at risk of refilling that. So in the meantime, while you're maintaining that empty state, and this is where this language comes from, and it's come down the years to mean empty of everything, but it's not. It's, it's an empty vessel ready for whatever may come its way. Amala Vijnana is this state. Prior to actual nirvana, right? Nirvana where you're free from these fetters, when you're still at risk of becoming a self again, this delusional self. But before you've clung or averted from, right, turned away from any of these aspects, while you're in this state, as Nietzsche would call it, amorphati, uh, love your fate, when you're in this state, also his eternal recurrence, if you're accepting everything as ordered, good and bad, as imposters both, as Kipling would say, this is the Amala Vijnana, this perfected nature. But you're among the very few to understand translation errors in uh, Red Pine's Langavatara, because it is, you must empty or, or um, uh, control those eight consciousnesses, right? Chitta Vritti Naroda, uh, to maintain this ninth consciousness of Amala Vijnana. Because once you're, you're, um, you're empty of these fetters, you still have to live within the uh, ephemeral world here, our conventional world, as some of them will call it. So you're still at risk of becoming an individual, becoming an uh, ignorant, uh, deluded person, but you're not free from those risks. So between uh, nirvana and samskara, uh, samsara is this perfected nature, this amala vijnana chitta vritti naroda leads you to this place I said between ignorance and bliss between nirvana and samsara is naroda or amala sattva amala sattva this perfect being, right? So that was my questions, because originally he was talking about what is the true nature of self in the uh, Devi Mahatma, and he said self-aware creativity. Self-aware creativity is how Nietzsche calls it. Man is the evaluator, Shatsun. Shatsun could be considered creativity, because he says meaning is creativity, creativity is valuing, valuing is so for me, being in a Buddhist temple, a uh, Pure Land Buddhist temple, as a Yogacaran Buddhist, 
a Western Yogacara Buddhist in a Chinese Pure Land temple, having a Hara Krishna come in, question Buddhist understanding of the nature of soul, led me to understand the foundational principle of the Amala Vijnana, this perfected nature, which led to me having this trust, this confidence, this devotion, this shraddha for Yogacara, because I, I realized it had the potential to heal this trauma of mine, as well as others, again, this universal nature of the self. Right? So for me, the circular nature of this, that this all began with my love of Nietzsche and my love of the Tibetan Book of the Dead, that led to thought of experiments that, that just continued to lead me to this point where we're at now. Right. So that was my uh, class on the weekend. Right. I know, that was a little bit rambly. And that's what's weird. I actually did kind of, um, what do you call it? Um, scripted, yeah. Because I said it was uh, the, the Q&As for Acharya. Right, I had a uh, question about modern philosophies, gurus, cults. He mentioned uh, last week that uh, he finds that's why they're so aimless and, and they don't last is because they don't have connections that go back, you know, uh, to the Vedas because of tradition, because of value, because of um, um, sufficiency, right? It actually helps. So I originally had a question. I wanted to know, like, what sort of discussions were there when he was in school in Germany? Uh, because of so many of these professors, Nietzsche, Jung, Maslow, Nishitani, wasn't German, you know what I mean, influenced by Nietzsche, uh, who was influenced by these same lessons and teachings, right? So I wanted to ask him about this modernization of this mythos, these archetypes, right? That Jung and Campbell and Fry all talked about, right? What is his opinion on um, Shakti being reinterpreted as Zela to Jung or Bodhisattva to the Buddhists, right? Ubermensch to Nietzsche or Christos to the Greeks, this anointed one, right? I also wanted to know this lost teaching. Do we risk the teaching itself if we don't explore these interconnections? Because for me, it deepened my understanding of Yogacara. It didn't make me a Hare Krishna to be questioned by a Hare Krishna. Taking uh, Shaivism doesn't make me a Shaivist. All it served to do is deepen my understanding of the same yoga car. And so I was just going to mention again, as far as the as a background, that this began with him mentioning self-aware creativity, which is this individual, which led me to remember, like Nietzsche's Zarathustra, um, Jung's Liber Novus, the Upanishads, the Bhagavad Gita. Yoga Sutras of Pandanjali, the Lankavatara Sutras, uh, the Dhammapada. Um, I mean, arguably, I see it in the obscure night of the soul. Um, I mean, I, I don't see very much difference. But I wanted to just quickly mention how important this ninth consciousness, not often taught, and how it shows 
that this knowledge is being lost because we're not teaching it, right? So because you think there's only eight consciousnesses, you, you of course, are going to assume that's the final consciousness, the eighth, when it's obviously not. How could it be, right? So that's the question we need to understand. What is between ignorance and bliss, right? What is between samsara and nirvana? This is this amala viznana, this perfected consciousness. So what our goal is not nirvana, our goal is naroda. And we want to be the best we can possibly be. So not just bodhisattva, amala sattva. You want to be a perfect being, this entire being, right? This gestalt I keep on and on talking about mind and body complex which is why I prefer to call myself a chitta matra chitta matra um, being mind matrix consciousness matrix which is mind only that's literally what this philosophy is because I don't see myself as a yoga car and I don't see myself as anything but an individual striving to have an understanding of the nature of reality and the nature of self and I feel like Bruce Lee did that uh, this applying of labels which is a Zen teaching as well this applying of labels is is if nothing else very limiting right as um, as recently as crazy wisdom or divine um, madness this idea that Jung said that we need to leave reason behind to explore both sense and nonsense. But it's no different than what Nietzsche told us to, uh, to do. Realize that you are a camel carrying traditions and expectations from previous generations and others. You need to grow and evolve into a lion that can tear down those aspects that, that don't aid you in your path forward to carve for yourself a, a new path and a new individual, who you are, who you could be, what your guide and your path may be. As uh, Churyi, which uh, Churyi Shur in Chinese could be translated as Master Calm Change. Uh, he's a Tian Tai patriarch, but I consider him an early Zen Chan patriarch as well. He said that um, sentient beings are numberless, as are the doorways uh, to entry uh, to the Dharma of Nirvana. So how could we understand anything less than how important it is to find a personal path? Thank you. Have a lovely day.